Hello and welcome to DeFi 2.71 podcast. I'm your host, Seraphim, and today we're going to chat with Evgeny from RE7 Capital, which is a liquidity provider in DeFi. We'll be chatting about how a liquidity provider invests, how do lending protocols work under the hood, and all things DeFi. DeFi 2.71 podcast is sponsored by Euler Finance. Euler is a revolutionary lending protocol backed by industry giants such as Paradigm, Lemniscap, Anthony Sassano, and Bankless. Euler Finance aims to democratize and disrupt the lending space by introducing innovations such as permissionless listing, MEV-resistant liquidations, tokenized debts, protected collateral, and many more. Phase 1 launch is scheduled for 13th of December, and check out Euler.finance for more information and exciting news. So welcome, Evgeny, to the first podcast. This is Evgeny from RE7 Capital, and uh, yeah, it's been a long time since we've seen each other. It was like a month ago in Lisbon, which was, I think, quite a blast, wouldn't you say? <laughs> yeah, thanks, Seraphim, for having me. It's uh, it's good to be back in Winter London. Uh, Lisbon was an eternity ago. Uh, it was a lot of fun, uh, but yeah, now it's time to do some real work. Yeah, time to ape into some shit coins, you know, finally. So. Well, not today. The more, clearly, we're in the beginning of a multi-year bear market. I mean, it's all over now, so... I hope your investors know that and they're aware. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> Every week is the end. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, Evgeny, could you tell our listeners perhaps what your fund does or your journey as well from traditional finance into DeFi? It's something that, you know, kind of I lived through as well. So it would be interesting to see your point of view and what got you into DeFi and what your kind of fund does within that space now. Yeah, I've spent about 10 years in TradFi on the investment side and, um, as I'm sure you've experienced, once you discover Ethereum, once you discover crypto, it's a rabbit hole and you can't really go back. So once you start diving in, there is only one way to go, and it's further down. Uh, DeFi, obviously, in this current sense, came about you know less than two years ago, uh, where we had some humble and hopeful experimentation, which then led to um, to the market growing 1,000x in terms of users, in terms of capital deployed, and it's basically a whole new financial system being built uh, by us and in front of us, uh, where the value flows are reimagined, uh, where people can come in and build. Uh, they can use the products in a much more open way. And we'll go deeper into this, but obviously this enables for a whole new industry uh, to be created because once you start treating finance as code, it changes things a lot. And at uh, Reseven, what we try and do is we try and support this ecosystem. So we provide liquidity to the early stage uh, DeFi projects, whether it's lending, whether it's trading, whether it's insurance or whatever else. And we basically aim to support the teams to be a power user on day one, provide liquidity and help the ecosystem grow, whilst at the same time delivering hopefully attractive investment results for our investors. Isn't it interesting, speaking of TradFi to DeFi, Everybody jumps from TradFi into DeFi, but nobody goes back. <laughs> yeah, I'm yet to meet people who go back. Oh, uh, you did? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's uh, is impossible. It's once you kind of once you see it, you cannot unsee it. It's not easy to accept what it is and understand all the implications. And realistically speaking, it takes many years. So you know, we've been able at 37 we've been able to kind of to identify this as an interesting investment field because we've been in the space of you know for six years, and this is our third iteration in terms of what we tried to build. So it's not easy, but once you're in, there is no go- going back. <laughs> nice. 
Um, as someone who has started out in traditional finance and went into DeFi, I'm sure you have lots of friends with hedge funds and banks who are like, what is this shit? You know, is it just hype? What's the kind of... To people that are still in traditional finance, how would you explain the value proposition of DeFi? Why is this a thing apart from just get rich quick, hype and NFTs and all that sort of stuff? In there? <laughs> yeah, honestly, I fail to explain it more times than I have succeeded. Uh, at some point, people just give up and say, you're just running a Bitcoin fund, right? That, that's basically what you do. And at some point, you just give up and you accept and you say yes. Uh, but in short, it's, you know, it's not even apples and oranges. You know, it's a much broader and wider gap. So I try to explain this to people as... You know, I want them to think about DeFi and financial products as apps, right? So we have, you know, we have our iPhones with an operating system, and then we have apps, and then we have apps on top of apps, right? Which is very different to how a financial system works today. So the very simple example I give to people with my you know, banking uh, background is, imagine that you want to get a mortgage, then you want to um, do an effects transaction, then you want to buy a stock, then you want to give this stock to a market maker to generate some additional fees, and then you want to buy insurance on that asset. Now, realistically, uh, unless you are, you know, George Soros, it will probably take you, you know, three to six months uh, to get all the accounts open, then get the transaction processed. In in crypto and in DeFi, it will take you, you know, five seconds basically. Mm. So everything exists as part of one flat platform. Everything talks to each other. Everything works together. And the whole infrastructure is just set up very, very differently. So just how you know your phone and your apps are more efficient than going into a branch and doing something physically, here you can get something very similar, and that's even before we talk about you know the software applications of that. I think when it comes to efficiency, a lot of people are like, oh, it's more efficient maybe, but where's the innovation? Where, while there is innovation, efficiency is also innovation. You know, We can travel to another country on horses or we can fly, and that makes a, a huge difference in terms of efficiency, right? Same with DeFi. Like, as you said, some things used to take six months. And now we can create, due to composability of Ethereum and other blockchains, we can just create stuff in a matter of seconds. We can, if I want to deploy a token, I don't have to listen on New York Stock Exchange. I could create a token on and listen on Uniswap. It's done. If I want to create a financial index, I don't need to wait for BlackRock to create it. I can just use set protocol. And say, I want an exposure to Rapto, Shiba, you know, whatever you want. Whatever you want, right? Anyone can do it now. Or, like, uh, you want to lend and borrow anything, you've got Euler when you can just borrow, lend absolutely anything. If you want to use anything as collateral, there's some protocols like Kashi or Rari where you can do that too. So I think it's all about like flattening the curve of possibilities for everyone. You know, at a bank, if someone wants to create a structured product that's really weird, they can do it in a second. That's true. That's absolutely true. But only three, four banks can actually do it. Whereas here with in DeFi, anyone can. So I think that's kind of also the value proposition, just efficiency. You're absolutely right. But beyond that, I think there is the zero to one movement, right? So what we had with the internet uh, versus, you know, think, you know, Google versus Yellow Pages, mm. right? Or whatever other example we can think of. Um, it just disrupted the whole ecosystem. Everything started working differently, right? So um, instead of having you know a set of small roads here and there, suddenly it's a massive highway which connects the whole world together. And just the same effect that internet had on a lot of traditional industries. You know, finance hasn't you know in big ways finance has been affected by the internet, obviously, right? Because the speed of information and transactions and what have you. But the nature of the relationships 
in the financial industry has not changed. That's true. Um, so DeFi is changing that, right? So what internet did to Yellow Pages and many other uh, sections of the world, uh, crypto is doing to other and broader set of industries and DeFi is doing this to finance. Mm. Like the efficiency itself creates innovation in a sense, because now that you can build all these things on top, if you tap into composability of crypto, you can build things that you just never imagined before. Like the fact that I can create an NFT, now I can, uh, if I own an NFT, what if I want to borrow money against it? Okay, now I can do that. What if I want to securitize this entire thing as a, and fractionalize it and people can lend and borrow against it now? And, you know, like it just creates this, it taps into this ecosystem that creates innovation that was not there before with finance. It's just too mm -hmm. fractured. I couldn't own S&P 500 and use it as collateral and borrow, um, like some stable coins against it back in the day, right? Unless you have banking relationships, which now you don't need anymore because there's no custodians, there's no middlemen, like you can just do it now as a simple person, which I think, again, flattens the curve of possibilities for everyone. Absolutely. And it's all composable, right? And it's permissionless and it's open. So if, in your previous example, if you have, if you work in, you know, in a top bank and you create a very sophisticated product, it's only available to a, to a closed loop right, to a group of your clients, uh, your business partners, which is a small fraction of the global population. But here, everything you publish, you publish on the internet, you publish on the blockchain, and anyone can A, use it, and B, build on top of it. And when you allow for that open innovation, there is no limit to, you know, human ingenuity and creativity. So I I, I would be willing to bet that the, the real killer apps of DeFi have not even been invented or conceived yet. Okay, that's a good point. I'd love to know, because I've been talking to people in the investment space such as you, and a lot of people, they tend to say that in the next two years, the window of opportunity for real innovation in DeFi is going to start to close because the industry starts maturing. You could argue, like, there were a couple really innovative uh, DeFi projects like Uniswap, Compound, um, a couple others. But what do you think is the future like how we are we reaching maturity like because when you think of it if you replicate traditional finance in DeFi, we might be getting close to that point at this stage wouldn't you say we have exchanges mm -hmm. we have lending markets we have margin trading we have what we need permissionless options and futures maybe that's we kind happening. of have that already we kind of have that exactly yeah so we're getting to the point though where what is next what's beyond this are we maturing or not, you know? Well, I mean, if I knew, I would be trying to close some angel or VC deal, <laughs> honestly. Um, I, I think you're right that, you know, when you're recreating a new system, you obviously start by doing the same things, but better, right? So it does make sense to have decentralized exchanges versus centralized exchanges, you know, permissionless lending versus, you know, traditional banks, so on and so forth. And yeah, once you replicate most of the products, you know, where else do you really go? So I do think that the base layer is kind of done, but um, I guess my point is that we can't even envision what the future could hold. So, you know, again, let's use the metaphor of internet, right? So it's kind of hard to deduct or deduce where we are in the crypto adoption cycle versus the internet adoption cycle. But, you know, I think we'd probably agree that it's, you know, mid or late 90s, well, probably late 90s, but not, that, not at the thousands. So if that's indeed the case, then, you know, by that time, the internet basically barely replicated some of the basic infrastructure. And that's when you have the apps, you know, that started being created. So I think once we create uh, and replicate the existing financial system at scale, because obviously we have 
I think we have about 3 million unique DeFi users to date, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I think that's the latest number I saw on Dune. Um, so that's still a small fraction of even the crypto universe, right? So once all of these things work at scale, we will see something new. I, I just don't know what it is. I do think, you know, the wind of opportunity in DeFi is shrinking from the, you know, you'll not get the same outsized investment returns, right? You'll not get a thousand X on something which is, well, not obvious, but apparent. Um, so that that's pretty clear. Um, so the next wave of innovation has to be harder and more difficult. But uh, crypto so far has shown no limits to human creativity. So I don't think it will stop. That's fair. I suppose in terms of base layer of DeFi, we're probably there. You know, like another year, the base layer of things, like as we said, lending markets, exchanges, options, that's kind of there. But the question is what's built on top of that. Mm -hmm. If we think about things like the metaverse and NFTs and how people go into the metaverse and instead of, you know, uh, exchanging, you know, fiat money, they exchange value through NFTs, Mm -hmm. through, uh, they trade. I met a guy recently, and this is really exciting. Uh, They have a company, I can't remember the name, but the company is trying to encapsulate human emotions into an NFT. Uh, Reactions. I'm not sure. It was some... It could be that, but they're trying to encapsulate mm-hmm. the emotions into human and uh, human emotions into NFTs. Which, as a trader, I have these weird thoughts that now we can trade human emotions. Obviously, it's a natural thing. But think about this: if you in the metaverse, you want to measure some someone's popularity, mm-hmm. do it through emotions, and now you can encapsulate that as well. And just the economy's building around that idea is just insane. Like if somebody is very well known, like a celebrity, and they have social capital, mm-hmm. if they suddenly feel a sudden emotion towards you as a person, that has value, right? That's a unique feeling that can be capitalized on. Or yep. you could, well, I don't know, you, you you have a wife and somebody's betting on you not loving her anymore and they just short sell your love. You know, I don't know, like, it's so much yeah, stuff. That just sounds like a good game to play. <laughs> sounds awful, actually. But, <laughs> no, but I, th- I think that's a great point because, you know, like what are NFTs, right? NFTs are not these uh, crazy pictures of dogs and cats and penguins. Uh, this is actually, um, you know, a piece of internet you can own, right? It's a piece of digital content, whether it's, a, you know, uh, an emoji, whether it's a gun in a game, whether it's you know a picture, whether it's some IP or whatever it is, we haven't yet seen what could really be built with those things, right? So you know you can go and get a mortgage against your house. Can you go get a mortgage against your tweet? That's fair. Uh, or whatever else, right? So that will be insane because we are spending most of our days online, and you know the next generations will spend probably a higher percentage of their lives online. Uh, so there is more to explore there. And you wonder, actually, because everybody talks about inequality, the fact that old people have stocks and young people have nothing. If young people spend all their time online, and now we have NFTs that effectively encapsulate value of whatever's happening online, you could argue we're going to the world where inequality is not going to become so much of an issue. Once you start getting paid for playing, for watching content, you are an investor into everything you interact with. Now, you have young people who, you know, just go about their daily lives and they, you know, do things over the internet and they own this. Now they finally can mm-hmm. just say they have capital that you can use as collateral to, as you said, borrow a house against it because why shouldn't they have value? Or a viral video, uh, you know, people, people say meme coins are a joke. If a viral video is something that every marketing agency is striving to achieve, how can a meme coin not have value? Right? Agreed. Uh, I, think that's, uh, I think that's a great point. Obviously, we've seen this with the play to earn. Uh, 
uh, and maybe it's a good time to to go back to one of your original questions about what's the value proposition of DeFi, right? And the value proposition of crypto and DeFi is obviously a sub- subsection of that, is that you are paid to be a user, right? So, you know, there's this famous saying in kind of in Web2 that, you know, if you're not paying for a product, you're a product, right? So Facebook is the best example of that, obviously, as, you know, you are the product, they're consuming your data and that's how they make money. In crypto, you have play to earn. So if you play a game, you can make money off that. You you know you breed some beasts and you sell them and you you know you make money. It's a fa- there are a few successful case studies there. Um, but the same goes for DeFi. So our fund, for example, uh, gets paid to borrow on some platforms. We get paid to be an early user. Uh, you know, if you have an account with with the best bank in the world, you're the one paying them ultimately, um, and you hopefully get some value as well. But imagine that you are a customer of a bank and for every second where you have money on deposit, you get a share of that bank. So that creates loyalty. Uh, that creates very different set of incentives. And it just changes the, the, the whole dynamics, right? We had this with the, um, uh, with the airlines using the miles as a marketing tool. But obviously, they have no secondary market value. You can't really trade them. You can't really do anything with them apart from obviously using them for the flights. And obviously, they, they inflate them away, right? So every year, they become less and less valuable. Uh, but DeFi is the opposite. And I would bet you that um, over the long run, we'll see that there is much more uh, attrition uh, when it comes to customer loyalty uh, because you get paid to be a user, right? You get paid to experiment and, and build and use. I think it's also very important in the society that we shift from a perspective of everybody is paying money in rather to society where people own things. Mm-hmm. Like that's what... Any conservative government in the UK has always dreamed, dreamed about this. Here it is. Like, people can be asset owners through NFTs in the digital space rather than necessarily, mm-hmm. you know, rather than a house, for instance. And that makes them asset owners. When people are asset owners, suddenly they start caring about things they normally don't care about, like taxes. Oh, how much am I paying in terms of tax? What's the accountability of government when I have to uh, sell some of my NFTs in order to finance this budget, right? People don't think about that stuff when they're employees. But once you're an asset owner, only it's substantial because you generate activity all the time. You're getting paid for it in assets. Mm-hmm. The society starts to change, and I think that's what NFT. That's why NFTs do. That's kind of crucial here and beneficial, in my opinion. Absolutely, and this creates global mobility and makes the whole world hopefully at some point more efficient and hopefully a bit less violent. Exactly. <laughs> Without going to too much into politics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so. Speaking about DeFi and its level of situation, right? So as you mentioned, we obviously have quite a few lending platforms there. Uh, and they have their pros and cons, but they do exist at reasonable scale. So obviously, you know, Euler is a permissionless lending platform, right? So it would be great to hear your thoughts about, you know, how you guys came up with the idea to build this. And uh, where do you, how did you find that niche for yourself in the growing market uh, and in a relatively saturated market? And how are you just thinking about, you know, where, where you fit in and what you do differently? Sure. So a little intro into Euler. Uh, we are a permissionless lending protocol uh, built on Ethereum. Uh, we recently raised a Series A with Paradigm in July, and now we are due to launch very soon. And what Euler is trying to achieve is fill a niche in the market where you have permissionless lending and borrowing markets, which is not the case for Compound and Aave. Take Token holders are saying, we want this token to be a lend, to be lent to borrow than our platform or not. We think it should be permissionless, while at the same time respecting kind of basic risk management, decreasing systemic risk. And that's kind of the market niche we're going for. Something that 
institutionals and retail people could use that would be safe, but at the same time in the spirit of blockchains, which is permissionlessness. That's interesting. So there are some platforms right now that do allow permissionless listing, right? So how would your approach be different to what they're offering today? So if you compare us to the, to other protocols like, for instance, Kashi or Rabi, which are you know have their own kind of ways of doing things, um, they allow anyone to do anything basically. If you want to use your tokens as collateral, as long as there's somebody who wants to borrow, that's fine. You know, um, on oil it's slightly different. There is a big theme about risk management, which means only certain things are allowed as collateral. That is done in order to unleash capital efficiency because we don't fragment liquidity pools. There's only one pool for Ethereum. There's only one pound, uh, pool for Compound, unlike other protocols where like, you can have an isolated pool between Sushi and Uni, but another one between Sushi and uh, Ethereum, right? In our case, it's one pool, which is great from capital efficiency point of view, but that also means you have to be very careful about what you list as collateral. And this is where we have a kind of a comprehensive risk framework. So we don't allow systemic risk to blow the protocol up. Okay. Um, so, Seraphim, so you mentioned that um, there is some governance process in some of the um, larger protocols right now that uh, controls which tokens, well, governs, not controls, but governs which tokens are listed and what ratios they have and parameters they have. There are some other platforms which are fully uh, permissionless where you can literally do whatever you want. So if I want to create an Evgeny token and... Uh, create a lending and borrowing pool, assuming I can convince people to to use that pool, people will jump into that, assuming the rewards are obviously attractive. So there are some players that allow that right now. So, so when you're raising your institutional venture round, right, and I'm sure you have to convince your investors uh, that, you know, apart from the team being great, there was also a market niche for that. So, and I'm sure they pushed you and asked you, well, there are kind of people doing something what sounds to be similar. So how are you guys different? What are you doing better or differently? And what is the problem that you're solving in the market? Yeah, I think when it comes to um, to this, risk management creates capital efficiency in our view. If you have robust risk management, where you try to contain systemic risk, you incentivize institutional guys or just big, you know, um, whales to lend. If a lot of people are lending and they're, you know, it's, it's a well-diversified lending base, you increase capital efficiency because utilization is going to be less volatile, which means interest rates are going to be less volatile. And there's a borrower, that's good for you. Because if, if just one guy lends into a pool uh, and the moment he withdraws, utilization goes to 100% and interest rates hit 500% APY, that's not capital efficiency, right? Now, if somebody wants to create that market, that's great that we have this. But if you want to unleash actual capital efficiency with diversified lender base and uh, less volatile interest rates, you kind of need to have one pool for one asset. And, and that's sort of the argument. You know, uh, At the same time, in order to decrease the risks, you need to kind of have a comprehensive risk management. This is what we've created. There's a way to rank assets according to volatility, to liquidity, to centralization, smart contract risk, so that only high quality assets are allowed as collateral. And that significantly decreases collateral, uh, you know, um, systemic risk, which is what creates capital efficiency as well. So basically, it sounds like what exists in the market today is either, you know, let's say very efficient risk management system, but then tightly controlled, and then the other end where there is no need for a very sophisticated risk management system because everything is segregated and separated, right? Exactly. So therefore, there is no contagion risk. Therefore, why bother about? Uh, 
doing too much on the risk management side. Exactly, yeah. But if you want to unleash real capital efficiency, you need to uh, have proper risk management, sort of, to have one pool for one asset. And that's what we're trying to solve for. And how how should we as DeFi users or DeFi investors think about risk and risk management in, in DeFi? Because uh, there are obviously traditional metrics, uh, you know, on the lending side and what have you. But also... Um, you don't have a, a team of risk managers sitting in the bank with a pen and paper and discussing how to approach things. Everything is codified. Mm. And whenever there is code, there is room to manipulate it. Right. So over the last few months, we've seen a lot of price manipulation and very complex kind of code, not even, well, code attacks, basically. Um, so how do you guys think about managing the credit risk and the smart contract risk? Yeah, I think it's useful to have a look at how these attacks usually look like and how systemic collateral assets are. So if I use Seraphim token as collateral, for instance, whoever is crazy enough to borrow against that, <laughs> whoever is crazy enough to borrow against that, you know, uh, go ahead. But what happens is, if it's a very liquid asset, Seraphim token, and you lend it, oh, by the way, we're speaking about all the collateralized loans here, so I have to lend something to borrow something, right? Mm -hmm. So if I were to uh, deposit Seraphim token, and then I was able to pump the price by a thousand percent because it's very liquid, which often you know is the case. That basically means that if I pump the asset, now I could borrow a lot more against it than mm -hmm. usually I would be able to. So I can just run away with a bunch of Ethereum, uh, and that's it. And people who are lending Ethereum out, Ethereum out, they are facing the prospect of bad debt because they can't because get it, money then back. it would just leave this bad asset. Uh, sitting on the balance sheet because you actually don't care about it, right? Because you just pumped the price. Yeah. It's like, you don't care about Seraphim token, actually. The risk, the pumping the asset might cost you, let's say, 20 grand, but you've stole $3 million worth of Ethereum. So that's a good, pretty good trade. And that's systemic risk because uh, you leave, just because Seraphim token is illiquid, you leave the Ethereum lenders without money. And so the contagion has spread to another lending pool, mm -hmm. which is an issue. Or alternatively, what you could do, I mean, it's, uh, I don't know why people would do that. Economic incentives are not quite there, but you could collapse the, the asset price of collateral. That way, all the borrowers that borrowed against it are stopped out, effectively. They have to be liquidated. Why you would do that? There's probably lots of reasons for, you know, I don't, I'm not aware of at the moment, but, you know, that's another thing that's risky um, about illiquid collaterals. When it comes to illiquid borrowed assets, there's also risk. It's not as systemic. Well, either way, it would be pretty bad for, for lenders of those borrowed assets. So if I used Ethereum as collateral, which is pretty okay, and I borrowed Seraphim token, and somebody could easily just collapse the price of Seraphim token, now I can borrow a lot more Seraphim token than I normally would be able to, and I can run up, run away with those assets, these assets, you know. Now, if, if it's illiquid in the first place, maybe it's not as valuable, but that's an attack vector that is not as systemic which is why we put so much kind of effort into assessing the value of collateral, uh, the kind of liquidity and volatility of historic, uh, of collateral assets. And so it sounds very complex uh, uh, and sounds like you have to get a lot of things right, right, to, to manage this properly. So over the long run, what is the key advantage to, to the DeFi ecosystem, whether it's lenders or borrowers or both, uh, to gradually transition to solutions like yours? Um, because I would bet you most people in DeFi wouldn't even think about this risk. They could understand them if they wanted to, but at the moment, obviously, they kept, you know, people are quite uh, generous with their time and, and tokens. So I'm curious how you guys think about the longer-term um, kind of differentiation and whether you think this capital efficiency is kind of material enough to, to move the needle. Mm. 
as a trader, I could tell you for sure, like you don't remember the good times. You always remember the bad times, right? <laughs> That's true. But more people lose money, the more they start caring about this stuff. It's yeah. inevitably happens, yeah. especially when you have a big balance sheet and you raise investor funds and you start losing them. I think that's where like it inevitably will kind of converge to something safer. So it's, yeah. So that, that, you don't care till you do. You don't care until you do. That's the sad thing. It's just such a human thing to only care about after things go wrong. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, inevitably, that's what's going to occur. So, um, which is another reason why we've you know, spent a lot of money in audits as well. Uh, there's people underwriting, like you know, actually, might some of our auditors actually might not make money if we get hacked, for instance. So that's a nice alignment incentive of Sherlock that we've done. Um, I think that's the value proposition ultimately, to be honest. But there's quite a few interesting things, like as a trader, probably uh, somebody from TradFi you would appreciate um, the liquidation space. Mm -hmm. um, was quite inefficient until Euler, I'd say, because if you, let's say you borrow and you have $10 million worth of like borrowed asset, you know, and you hit liquidity, your liquidity threshold because the collateral asset went down or your borrowed asset went up. Um, nowadays on the platforms, you have 5 to 10% uh, liquidation bonus going to the liquidator, mm -hmm. which means the borrower of that token essentially has to give away 10% of his collateral uh, or multiplied by how much it was, you know, was liquidated to the to the liquidator. That's a huge value transfer. You have a ten million dollar yep. trade for essentially not so much work, and that's where therefore we kind of implemented the Dutch auction mechanism, where if someone's profitable or two percent as a liquidator, they can just take that and go away. That should should decrease the spreads or liquidator bonuses. You know, I think of them as spreads, but. Um, another feature that's quite cool: if you um, get liquidated, you typically lose half of your loans. Mm -hmm. your loan, which therefore a big chunk of your cash which just goes away. And that's not a really cool experience, to be fair, as a borrower. So that's why we have a soft liquidation procedure where if you get liquidated, you are back to the green and a bit on top of that for safety reasons. Um, and therefore, you're not losing 50% of your loan most of the time. So it's a much more pleasant borrowing experience, which I think is long overdue in DeFi. I think you touched on a very interesting point, which is liquidations. Um, so all of our DeFi listeners will no doubt be familiar. Hopefully they haven't experienced it themselves, but they will know what liquidators are. Uh, but those who haven't necessarily used the DeFi pl platforms may not be familiar with it. Mm. So to me personally, once I was able to kind of at least at a high level, business level, comprehend what liquidation does, uh, for me that one was one of those zero to one innovations that got me excited about DeFi. Um, right. So I think the primitive way to think about liquidations is, you know, in a traditional world, you default only a mortgage. The bank has to foreclose on your property, which will take them six months, nine months in this you know, political economic climate. Then they have to give the asset to a collection, debt collection agency and they'll liquidate the asset. So a year later, you as a bank, you're kind of getting you know, 80, 90 or whatever cents on the dollar. But in, in DeFi, it happens in one block exactly. with the liquidations because it's all, well, it's not API, but it's programmatically uh, connecting and liquidating everything. So. Do you think that liquidations are kind of pests, you know, who uh, who leech on the on the poor and greedy borrowers? So, do you think it's a key function that actually maintains the viability of the whole ecosystem? And then, if if they do maintain this viability, um, is it fair to give them less or give them more? How how are you thinking about that? I think they perform a very important function. At the end of the day, it's just. You could argue they're getting paid a bit too much for it on average. So that's that's the argument that it should be market based. How much you get as a liquidator when you perform this function, rather than a set uh, five or ten percent, you know. But just 
briefly about liquidations, what they are. Again, if you lend out your Ethereum and you borrow, let's say, Uniswap token, and Uniswap price goes up, that means your liabilities are going up while your assets stay the same. And that's the same scenario as with the mortgage. You know, you're, uh, you're due to liquidation. You know, And that depends on what exact level of liquidation is. But let's say if you lend $100 worth of Ethereum, uh, you can, your liquidation level is 0.8, which means if your Uniswap token you know, is worth $80, you're subject to that liquidation, right? So a liquidator would come in and say, okay, I'm going to, let's say, take some of your liabilities away from you. At the same time, some of your collateral as well. And on top of that collateral, I'm going to take a little bit of a bonus. And that's the service fee, basically, for performing this function. So as you can see, I've taken away some of your liabilities. I've taken away some of your collateral and a bit on top of that. Now you're in the green. No, you're, you've been liquidated. But every time I do that, I take this bonus. And if it's 10% or 20%, that means there's actually an interesting risk. If the liquidator bonus is too high, there are scenarios where if I liquidate you, you keep going back into liquidation <sighs> because I take too much collateral from you. And there's a way to model it, but that's why another reason why they shouldn't be too high. Interesting. And you have this dynamic where there's constant payouts by the borrowers to the liquidators. If it were 1%, on a 10 million account, a lot of people as in liquidators would be profitable. So why should it be 10%, right? Uh, it can be higher because of gas. So the interesting feature actually on oil is that you're going to be able to take on market risk when you liquidate, which should decrease the spreads even more. So let's say I take on your debt and I take on your collateral. If I think that the collateral asset is actually going to bounce in price, I can... Uh, repay this debt and sell the collateral later because the collateral value is going to go up. So that way, I can say I'm going to be profitable 1% liquidator bonus because I can manage this, this risk pretty well. I take on the debt, the, the collateral. Let's say Ethereum is the collateral. It bounces 2% in price and I can sell at that and I have repaid the loan and you know got the collateral back. So it introduces basically trading floor market making dynamics, which we haven't seen in liquidator space before which should make it even more competitive because now you have yeah. people competing for the bonuses but with market risk. That's very interesting because at the moment, these liquidation bonuses are fixed okay. on each of the platforms. And presumably, yeah, presumably they overpay a little bit just to have the confidence that the liquidators will go and step in when they need to step in. Yeah. So there's probably room to optimize this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That should decrease the gas fees as well, make it less MEV um, kind of prone because you're not competing for this 10%. It's more like there's game theory now involved, you know. Maybe you're profitable too. Maybe at three, maybe four. You know? Makes sense. Yeah. So since we just discussed risk management, what about RE7 Capital? Like when you look at a project, what makes you think, this is a good project, I want to park my liquidity in. This is a red flag. Uh, how would you kind of manage these risks and rewards from uh, providing liquidity? I mean, we obviously only care about the memes, right? If the memes are good, then, <laughs> then the project is great. Uh, <laughs> the reality is that uh, at this stage in the market, it's obviously more art rather than science. Um, because when you deal with, um, with any DeFi project, there are different sets of risks that you take. And it's important to isolate these layers, quantify them, and then kind of, you know, choose them. And probably what will also make sense for me to mention is that, so we are a stablecoin-centric fund. Right, so uh, you know our objective is to provide our investors with you know the very lucrative um, yields in DeFi without taking on the directional price risk. So the first risk we run is that the specific stablecoin we use collapses in value, right? And that's um, sometimes it's a DeFi specific risk. Sometimes it's a risk of centralized companies that issue the stablecoins. 
But leaving that aside, uh, it's really difficult uh, to analyze risk in DeFi because the risk, I mean, the financial risk, if you have some expertise, you can analyze it pretty clearly. Uh, but the main risk is on the code side, is on the smart contract side, right? So if I'm, for example, um, using an overall collateralized position with a, with a prime broker, um, I kind of know how it is and how it works. And yeah, there is a risk that some other funds will manipulate the price, which of course they would never do. Uh, <laughs> they would manipulate the price, uh, assuming they know where I can get the margin call and then I run some risks. But again, that can be managed. It is much harder to imagine a scenario where the bank gets attacked by hackers uh, in a successful way because, it, you know, touch wood, um, this hasn't really happened at scale with large, you know, prime brokers and so on and so forth. So, so we have to analyze the quality um, of the team and if we feel comfortable that uh, there won't be basically a rug pull, right? Because you, DeFi and crypto are at a very interesting kind of time in their history where all the code is public and you can look at it and you can analyze it. The reality, however, is that uh, it's, this code is very difficult to analyze uh, and the odds are that you will miss something when you look at it. So our first assumption is that you know, we do look at the code. We have, you know, uh, I'm fortunate to work with a team of very smart people uh, who can actually read the code and analyze the code. Um, but our assumption is that we're always going to miss something. Um, so therefore, you need to just do your kind of fundamental analysis and have a belief in the team that, A, they will do right by you and they will not run away because there is a risk of hacks, but also there's a risk of rug pull where, you know, there, sometimes there are anonymous teams where you don't know who these people are and therefore it's quite tricky to place your faith uh, and your capital into them. Uh, and then you have to understand how to think about risk, right? So we study their code, we study their documents, we study the fundamental risks of the platforms, and we try to basically come up with a, with a risk ranking system and see if we believe that this is something that is you know legitimate and battle-tested, and then we rank it and we adjust the position size accordingly um, to try and capture you know the best kind of, the best unit of, return divided by the unit of risk. I'm wondering, is there some sort of a raw thumb from your experience that it kind of indicates that a team is less likely to do a rock pool? Like, have you derived any like uh, interesting indicators? It's not, it's not scientific, but you know, it, it's not that hard to come up with a basic rule of thumb. So if, if these people have public profile, uh, and I don't mean they're, you know, celebrities, I just mean at least you know who they are. Uh, because quite often it's just a picture on the internet. So, um, or an ape. Well, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will say if someone is an anonymous ape, it's probably better than. Uh, you you know. could argue, actually. Yeah. <laughs> you could, yeah, <laughs> you could. Um, uh, it obviously helps to know who the investors are because, you know, some investors um, are well known, some venture funds, right? They're well known to do some very serious due diligence into the teams that they back. Not all the funds do, but, you know, we try to work with those who do. Um, and then their general ethics uh, and kind of discipline when it comes to code um, and how they treat it. Uh, actually, just by looking at that, you can arrive to a lot of different conclusions. So when my colleagues and I look at the code, sometimes there are pieces of code missing, or you can actually see that a lot of code hasn't been published. Mm. So then you ask the team why hasn't been published, and then if you don't get a clear answer, then probably you should walk away. Yeah. Um, so it's not that hard to kind of cut a lot of the noise, so to speak. Uh, but obviously the problem is that 
even the best intention, you know, people with best intentions and very smart people, they can still get attacked by hackers and they can get attacked successfully. And here is where insurance comes in, um, apart from the basic kind of common sense risk sizing of the position. It seems like... Um... Um, it seems like like basic transparency and having a public profile is it, it helps with uh, finding you know good teams basically. Right? Uh, definitely, and I mean we being very realistic about it. You know, you have a lot of you know what is uh, glamorously called DJ money uh, <laughs> in crypto, which basically it doesn't mean this. You know, basically you have quite well off participants in this market who don't have to abide by institutional governance standards, right? So we are, you know, we're a regulated fund and we have a responsibility to our investors. If I'm just a, a financially successful person who made money in DeFi and I choose to randomly spread my bets uh, all over the place, there's nothing wrong with that because statistically speaking, there is venture style payoff in these opportunities. So even if you lose money on nine things out of 10, the other one will pay you, pay you off so handsomely that it's worth the risk. But it's a different risk-return kind of mandate. And therefore, I personally believe that, yes, just having some basic uh, transparency goes a long way. Um, we discussed this a bit before, but in terms of returns in crypto, uh, I think because of the tokenization of a lot of, of, these, um, of, of these projects, you have very high returns on practically anything. Which is not very VC style model, right? VCs are like, well, ninety percent is going to be completely dead, and ten percent might outperform, or even less than that. Mm-hmm. With crypto, because we've tokenized so many projects early on, and you have the beta of the bull market just dragging that, your entire return curve kind of just explodes. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's? I mean, I don't want to sound like a traditional finance person, but like, is that sustainable? Do you think there's good, there's a case to be made that we are benefiting from the bull market? Uh, systemically, you know, just because we list on, you know, tokens list on decentralized exchanges, that makes them more likely to just outperform, even if they're not so successful, or we're going to mature to the point where only a few projects actually go mm. up in price? It's a good question. I think the answer is probably both. Um, so the early liquidity is a feature, not a bug in this case. So um, I actually had this conversation many times with some of my friends um, who are concerned about the price volatility of Ethereum, right? And most people in DeFi, you know, hold Ethereum and that's what kind of gave them some financial success. And they're always, you know, is the bear market coming? Is the bull market coming? But then if you flip the question, and so Ethereum has been around for six, seven years, right? Well, six years, basically. Um, so if you have something that's been around for six years, uh, the metrics and the fundamental growth is that insane. Um, you know, is it a Series C, Series D kind of company? If it was a venture project, so then those who bought it five, six years ago, they came in at, you know, see the Series A. Now their project is a Series D. It has grown 1,000x, if not a million x, I don't even remember the numbers, and it keeps growing. So I looked at the Ethereum network revenue year on year, and it was up 500%. Nice. So you're sitting on an asset that is growing at that pace, um, and I come to you and say, you know, can you sell your, you know, Series D uh, investment to me? You will probably tell me no. So... I think this liquidity creates a lot of noise um, and changes things, but basically things do get liquid very early. So if you're a venture fund and you have a portfolio of Series A, Series B companies and they're stagnating, the odds are you can't really sell much. Maybe some of them will get equi-hired and you will make you know, 20, 30 cents on a dollar, but that doesn't really work. Uh, but in, in crypto, these tokens are liquid 
Um, and obviously in the bull market, it's easier to get out, uh, but you can get out to a certain extent. And if you can't, you, they can be productive assets, right? You can stake them, you can lend them, you can do something else with them. So I think it changes the dynamics and obviously it will get tougher in the bear market, but I don't think this feature will go away. Actually, there is an interesting point to be made because of this liquidity. Uh, effectively, you can put more risk, uh, more capital at risk, because now your floor is not zero. Exactly. Now your floor is minus 30 or 40, 50%, which is, uh, yeah, which basically means you can put more value at risk. So liquidity is actually creating more risk taking, you could argue, uh, which is not like, I'm not discovering America really, but you know, but I still think it's a quite a significant feature that uh, crypto enables that wasn't there before. You're absolutely right. So if, for example, you know, you want to lend to a venture-backed company. So there's, you know, there are great funds doing venture debt products. It's an illiquid product um, that can hopefully perform very well, but you're stuck with it for seven years. Um, in DeFi, liquidity is, unless you choose to lock it up, is instantaneous. Now, so we, for example, we choose to run a, you know, a monthly liquidity cycle for our funds, or unless we can come in and out once a month, it could be done even more frequently. It's just very painful from the administration perspective. But this is extremely liquid and not too different from keeping your assets on a deposit. Mm. So by the virtue of being liquid, it allows you to deploy more capital because you know you can get it out, uh, which you're right, change the dynamics. And this disposable capital opens up opportunities for more teams, uh, you know, more projects and creates this positive virtual cycle. You, you just mentioned debt. And I actually wondered, what's the scope of debt in crypto. Nobody talks about this, but debt markets in traditional markets are the biggest markets, mm -hmm. right? Are we shifting to the space where debt is not as relevant or do you think that might be the ultimate frontier that is not discovered yet in crypto debt? How do you think that? It's a good question. So I tend to think of uh, debt on chain as something rel as relatively safe. Uh, because your positions are fully collateralized and there are automated liquidators. So unless there is a price manipulation or a smart corner hack, you should not experience any losses from the credit side. Uh, so therefore, lending as percentage of the whole crypto market is relatively small because it's fully collateralized. Right? So in the banking, it would be an equivalent of a Lombard loan. Right? You, have a, you have Apple shares and you borrow dollars against it and do whatever you want with them. You don't yet have, uh, you know, credit lines. Um, you do have them in CeFi, um, and we're starting to have them in DeFi. So there are projects like Maple, for example, um, that basically take on-chain capital and lend it off-chain to some of the most serious and biggest market makers in the world. And Centrifuge lends it to real-world assets, whether it's real estate or gig economy or, or what have you, but it's still a small fraction of the market. There are some projects working on uh, building your credit history on the blockchain and kind of um, to assess your viability as a potential borrower. That will be a very big, a big one. That's a scary thought, to be fair. At it the same is. time, like I, I see why this is being done, but at the same time, because it's the blockchain, it doesn't matter if the blockchain is in America or Germany. Like there's one credit score for everybody, and that's just I don't know, it's scary a bit. It is scary and also very tricky because it's all so far it has all been anonymous, right? So um, if you default on the wallet, you can go and open up another one and do it all over again. So I think it's a very difficult problem to solve. But so far, humanity has been able to solve most problems relating to finance, <laughs> at least temporarily. Yeah, yeah 2008, right? <laughs> well, we're still here. Um, so clearly things work to a certain extent. 
So I think, yeah, it's a big problem to solve. And even when it's solved, it will propel this market uh, in, in a very, very serious way. What about financing as a project in terms of debt? Do you think that's, like if you're a, a protocol or anything, do you think tokens is like the only way or there will be actually some debt market for, for this? It's a good question. So we already have grants, um, right, where uh, people are able to build something just using you know, well, free capital, basically. Um, yeah, sometimes they sell tokens. Uh, but I think the beautiful thing about tokens is that you know, I think those who are not deep in the crypto, they think of cryptocurrency as currency because it's just Bitcoin and it's very loud. Uh, I think most of us in crypto think of tokens as equity because we get claim. Well, obviously, it's not regulated and it's not a financial security, but they have comparable features, right? They may pay you dividends or, or, or. Uh, but the point is that a digital token is what you tell it to be. So if you tell it to be uh, an asset that gradually amortizes and pays you a fixed coupon, then effectively it's debt. So I think, yes, it's absolutely feasible. And I'm sure there are structures that, that already exist that work in that way and it will continue to grow. That's true, because a token could, say, uh, not give you governance rights. It only gives you some sort of a fixed payout. And that, the token could become debt by virtue of that if people don't want to give away their you know, ownership of the governance. But well, they can still give you governance rights because in certain situations, obviously, bondholders... Uh, in the traditional world, they do allow, they are allowed to vote on certain things um, to, to a certain extent. So here we can have that as well. But uh, in that case, you know, the key feature between debt and equity is obviously there is a cap on the financial upside, right? And that's if this, which is actually slightly different to our fund, for example, uh, because as I mentioned, any DeFi participant uh, who provides liquidity gets paid and you know, gets these rewards, which are effectively tokens. So what is interesting is that you can provide liquidity, you can get some rewards, and sometimes you can choose to sell them straight away, which we prefer not to do. Um, or you can treat them as equity value, which one day could double, triple, or 10x. And that gives you positive optionality and incentivize you to take more and more risk, which makes the life of a conservative TradFi uh, kind of boomer allocator tricky, but makes the space very exciting. Uh, it's quite cool. Actually, the, the risk profile must be very interesting because you earn your interest, you put in that balance sheet at work, and you receive huge convexity in return. So that seems like a pretty good kind of uh, risk profile. Exactly. Payout profile, yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah, the risk is still there, but the return on that risk seems to be attractive at this point in time. So what we tend to do is we try to help the teams as early as we can so that basically on day one of launch, uh, we could be there to, to provide liquidity and, and participate in that growth. Nice. So yeah, we both. So we, it seems we both agree that tokens can represent any financial payoff. Uh, but I guess this more applies to kind of ERC twenty tokens, which are um, governance slash financial in nature, or maybe even access sometimes. And then we have uh, a subset of other tokens which are non fungible, which could be which could represent digital content and digital IP. So would Euler at some point see itself as being able to lend against such assets? Oh, we were looking into NFTs quite a lot, uh, just discussing, not in terms of like doing a project yet, but just discussing what we can do. We feel like we want to do something about NFTs when we feel like that we can genuinely provide value to the community rather than just do something NFT related because there's definitely a case to be made that the future will be NFT based you know as we discussed the economy could be essentially be based on 
people interacting with NFTs all day, every day, which you see at conference, actually, funnily enough, it's like a you know teaser for what's to come. So we'll probably, we like to do something, but only when we feel like we generally provide value, like we increase capital efficiency, for instance, which is something that's completely lacking in the NFT space. You can get a loan against your NFT, but the process is kind of very manual. You go to a DAO, you have a governance proposal, uh, or it's peer-to-peer. But we need to reach a point where we can do um, peer-to-pool NFT collateralized lending. And we haven't yet figured out yet how to do that. But if we do, that could be something. That we is that do. even possible? That's the issue because, yeah, IC20s, they all are the same. With NFTs, how do you create this pool? Is it the same collection? Oh, there's so much discrepancy within that collection. Uh, financial manipulation that can be done in NFTs is like, uh, you can just buy NFTs, put in some cheeky bid and voila, you know. So that these are the things where, because we are kind of a risk management focused uh, protocol we need to really think deeply about uh, to begin with you know so but it's definitely something we're thinking about in terms of nfts because there's a trend there it's um it's there you know? and presumably i i think i've seen there are some platforms that allow you to rent your nft out right so theoretically you can have nft which also generates some cash flows right so maybe that makes it easier for you guys to eventually think of it as a financial asset it could be yeah that um we've uh, we actually spoken to guys from solve so s o l v uh, they're pretty cool guys. They created a financial NFT, which means um, these NFTs that contain ERC-20s and they can be uh, um, unlocked, let's say, in a year. So it's like a vesting contract, really, that trades at a discount because it can mm-hmm. be unlocked in a, in a year or two. And that is something more tangible, for instance, for us. We know the value of these underlying ERC-20s, therefore it's easier to, the only risk you take is liquidity and smart contract risk, probably, right? So these avenues, I think these kind of ideas are quite interesting to us. And I think there's definitely something that we could do in the future. You know, it's all about like the value and the, um, can we increase the capital efficiency without compromising risk management? You know, geez, if we can, that'd be something interesting. It's to a do. three trillion dollar question. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> okay, yeah. So, uh, again, one final question for you, um, cause we have to wrap up. Um, if someone from traditional finance came to you and said, should I jump into DeFi or is it too late? What would you tell them? I kind of tell people to jump into DeFi before they even ask me, to be honest with you. Uh, <laughs> it's definitely not too late. Uh, it's just getting started, right? The industry is two years old. Um, it has grown from 50 million in kind of AUM to 200 billion basically by now. Uh, the number of teams that are building something is increasing. All the metrics are going one way. And um, I think it's very hard to argue with that data. So it's definitely not too late. And I don't see how anyone with the energy and the desire to learn and create would choose not to be involved in DeFi uh, if they're interested in finance. So I think it's a no-brainer. How do you make that jump, you think? Is there something you can do that really sets you apart and allows you to do the jump? It's the 10,000 hour rule. It's unfortunately very difficult to beat that, but basically, you know, the best way to learn in DeFi is probably, there are probably two things you can do. First is, you know, use every single product in DeFi. Uh, Try to lend, try to borrow, try to trade, try to buy decentralized insurance, uh, try to cross from one chain to another using a bridge, Um, and join a couple of DAOs where we haven't really touched on DAOs, but these decentralized communities and decentralized ways of people working together and coming together. It is... Um, mind-boggling thing if you come from traditional corporate world uh, because you realize the world is much more open and much bigger than what you think it could be. 
if they can raise $40 million for, to buy a piece of paper in a fucking week, imagine the stuff that we could do, actually, with uh, if we put our minds to it. You know? uh, exactly. There is no, you know, when you see people coming together uh, whilst having the right incentives in place, um, there is no limit to what can be built. Exactly. Absolutely. And speaking about Euler, what are the things we should be on the lookout for? Uh, what should we be keeping an eye on? So if you're in the community chat, you know we love to tease people a lot. You know? <laughs> but I would say watch out for an announcements in the beginning of December. There's uh, some really good stuff coming as a liquidity provider, as a retail person, as anyone. I think you'll be... That's some alpha right there. <laughs> <laughs> Wag me anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Wag me indeed. All right. Um, Evgeny, thanks a lot for taking the time. I think it was a great talk. We touched on many subjects and I uh, hope to have you back soon. Thank you, Seraphim. 